Welcome to Technado with Don Pizzette. Featuring sysadmin expert, Don Pizzette. Security specialist, Daniel Lowry. And Peter. Hello and welcome to Technado with Don Pizzette. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, and I am joined, as always, by Don Pizzette. Don, how are you doing today? I am doing great. Ready to follow up on some of the Microsoft news that we alluded to in last week's episode, so this one should be a pretty good one. Yeah, we've got some Microsoft news. We've got we've got a uh, an update on, I, I know, last week, right after we went off the air, uh, the whole John McAfee thing happened, so we got, we're definitely going to talk about that in a little bit. And, uh, and the expert on that topic is, of course, Ronnie Wong. Ronnie, how are you? I am great to be here because uh, <laughs> uh, I found out uh, once again this morning that I was going to be on the show. So that's yeah, yeah, awesome. Ronnie is here every week, just standing right outside I, the door in case someone falls down. Yeah, just in case. We've got so, Ronnie. Uh, I'm here and ready for to share my McAfee knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we are also joined by Kevin Dunn. Kevin is the president of Pathlock. Kevin, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me today, guys. I'm happy to be here. Now the guitar on the wall is it just decoration or do you actually? Uh, currently, it's a dust collector, but oh. uh, I, I do like to play from time to time. But uh, in a small New York City apartment, that's a good way to uh, make enemies of the neighbors. So <laughs> yeah, I have to like play with the neck sticking straight up to fit with the walls and everything too. Exactly. Yeah. Or go to the park, I guess. Park. And then people put money in your <laughs> yeah. hat. It's like an extra source of money. income. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what do they call that? Busking? Busking, Busking. yes. Yeah. Busking. The subway has such great acoustics. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> let's get to know Kevin a little bit more in our first segment, which is rapid fire questions. Who do you work for? What's new? Who are you? What's happening? What's wrong with you? All right, Kevin, in this segment, we are going to rapidly throw questions at you. You'll see a timer appear on the right side of your screen. You'll have approximately one minute to answer each question. If you take too long, Peter will buzz you like that. And we'll move on to the next question. We're going to rotate through each of us, and we're going to start with Peter. All right, so All right. I, I'm just curious. Can you give us kind of the, the elevator pitch uh, about PathLock? Yeah, for sure. So PathLock is a company that's focused on access orchestration, uh, we consider access orchestration sort of to be three main parts. It's obviously access, who can access applications, uh, but it's also data. What's the sensitive data that resides in these applications? And then security, it's sort of monitoring what are people doing with that access and how are they accessing and interacting with the data that's in the applications and sort of tying that all together and monitoring what people do. So that's our focus. Um, we're basically a, a layer seven security solution. We focus on the applications themselves. We feel like that's the most overlooked part of the kind of landscape in an enterprise in terms of security. A lot of people focusing on network and on, you know, other layers below layer seven um, and even layer eight, you know, the uh, actual individuals using the applications, but that layer seven piece we find to be missing and that's where we focus. All right. Now it's really timely that you're here on the podcast because last week we were talking about some of the challenges that end users create with working remote. And I think we refer to it as layer eight challenges. Right. Uh, so yeah. uh, one of the solutions that we talked about just briefly was a zero trust infrastructure. I know that's something that you guys do. Uh, it's not a new technology, right? Zero trust has been around for a little while. We've seen it uh, over the last five years, but it's, it's been growing and growing in importance each year, or at least in, in people's comments on it. Uh, what's your, your stance on that? Like, do you feel that a zero trust model is like the solution going forward, or is that just like one tool in your toolbox? Oh, I think it's critical, but I, I'm surprised it's taken this long for people to uh, 
adopt zero trust solutions, but obviously, as you mentioned, remote work is really pushing that to the forefront. But it makes sense, right? I mean, it's kind of uh, odd that why would you give someone more privileges than they need? I guess, you know, because you want to save time or it takes you too long to build the right roles and sort of segment your applications and have a more focused approach. But I think it totally makes a lot of sense, um, especially in a remote work environment. I think it's critical. So I'm glad to see people are finally sort of stepping up and adopting that technology. All right. You've recently launched your version five of your, uh, uh, of your software. Uh, can you tell us what's new in it? Yeah, absolutely. We're basically bringing together a number of different products that we used to have um, that were sort of more siloed uh, and, and worked independently. We're seeing that there's a lot of need to bring them together into one solution that works cohesively and where one piece can talk to another. So we basically have brought together solutions we had around application security monitoring, privileged access management, identity and access management, uh, transaction monitoring, activity monitoring, data governance, all into one uh, house, one solution, right? And so the benefit of that, which is really unique, is being able to do things like, for example, if somebody looks at sensitive data, we want to re revoke their permissions in that application or send an alert to a SIM, right? So um, that's the really exciting thing in this 5.0 release. Um, there's obviously a great new UI that's easy to use and um, looks great, has a lot of great reports in it, but really what's most important in game changing is what's under the hood that basically brings these solutions together so that they all speak with each other and allow you to do these unique uh, kind of cross silo use cases, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it's a narc, basically. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, that that stands with zero trust. No one trusts me. I mean, here uh, at yeah. our office, Don Don trusts me implicitly, and I have access to to way more than I should. Um, but I'm curious. Uh, you talk about uh, on your website that uh, people on both sides of the perimeter are untrusted, and. You know, as far as drawbacks go for zero trust, are there? I, I'm, it sounds like to me that some routine tasks might take a little bit longer for people that right. don't necessarily have have access to to everything. How, how do how do you guys handle that? Well, I mean, I think um, the analogy I like to use, right, is like, wouldn't it be great if you didn't have to stand in line at the bank, you know, and that you could just walk right into the back, go into the vault, you know, take your money, walk out, and you know, somebody writes down that you know your your bank account deposit is now $100 less, like, sure, that'd be more convenient, right? And the extra five minutes of waiting in line is, is certainly a pain, but it's something that, you know, you have to do um, because, you know, there, a bank, for example, is, is sort of a zero trust environment. If you think about um, how people go into a bank, they have to show their bank card, they have to prove I'm a bank customer, I have something in my account, you know, they verify you're the actual account owner, give you the money, right? Um, that That's kind of how we've come to accept that that's normal, right? And, and I think in terms of identity and applications, it's going that way as well. And, you know, I think we can automate a lot of the headaches of enforcing zero trust to make it not as burdensome on the business, but certainly the uh, time and delays, those are the big challenges in adopting zero trust, I think. Yeah, I don't know about like uh, comparing your, yourself to the bank because, I mean, last time I went to a bank, it was like 20 minutes to just get to the front. So so maybe like maybe like a bank in the 90s yeah. when, when there were more tellers right. and things like that. Uh, exactly. Yeah, last question I have for you. Uh, you talked about, you know, there's a slower adoption than you would have expected to zero trust. Has COVID accelerated that a little bit for you with, uh, you know, with people working from home? Have, have people adapted to that model? 
Yeah, I mean, I think now that remote work is here, that's really been one of the big pushes. I think it's remote work, right? And then it's also cloud adoption. I think those are sort of the two things that we're seeing driving a lot of the zero trust uh, adoption is because, you know, people are coming from outside the perimeter now and inside the perimeter, right? Because you're going to have people working from home and working from the office. And then you've got applications that are both inside the perimeter and then outside the perimeter, right? Like a Salesforce, Concur, Google Docs, things like that, that are hosted in the cloud. So you've sort of got, you know, outside the perimeter to outside the perimeter, outside the perimeter to inside and in, in all directions, right? And I think the only way to really manage that basically is get to a zero trust methodology, right? Because um, zero trust is gonna basically provide additional protection in all four of those areas, right? In terms of the, the populations inside and outside the perimeter and the applications inside and outside the perimeter. So I think it makes a lot of sense and it's mostly remote work driving it, but I think also the cloud adoption, right? Otherwise people would just be looking at things like um, zero trust network access or, or just VPN solutions, right? And just trying to solve, how do I get people from outside the network to inside the network securely? But really it's a bigger problem than that because there's also applications that live outside the network now as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that kind of leads us, I think, well into our article we wanted to discuss with you, which is right up your alley. This one is from serverwatch.com, and the headline is Using Zero Trust Security to Protect Applications and Databases. And, you know, having having looked through this, they, they talk a little bit about why uh, people should go with zero trust and, and how to implement it. Do you agree with uh, kind of the points that they made in there? Are there some um, some differences with, with how you, you feel people should approach zero trust? Well, yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of good points there, right, that make sense. Um, but I think they, they sort of peeled the, the onion back, uh, maybe a few layers, but not all the way, right? The, a lot of the focus in the article was basically on micro segmentation at a network level, right? Basically saying, look, you know, if I have an area of my network that contains uh, sensitive customer information, I should segment that off. So nobody who works in, you know, let's say uh, accounting should access that. That's really only for support folks. So I'm going to basically create a micro segment in my network and say people only in customer support can access that segment of the network. Well, well, that's good, right? Um, and that is sort of getting towards least privilege access, but really the true least privilege access zero trust concept would be to go even further, right? Can I go into the application and actually look at what lives within the application and how can I segment that? Um, not really at a network level, but really more at kind of an attribute based level, a, a data level, right? To say, look, within my application, if I want to peel the onion a couple layers further, um, I have different populations of, of users and different types of data that they interact with. I might have people who work on European customer support versus people who work on US customer support. And so if I can go deeper into the application uh, and basically map out you know, the data to say, here are US-based customers that should only be accessed, their data should only be accessed by US-based support personnel. Um, for example, I can actually go past just segmenting who can get into the application to get, actually look at the application itself, the data in there and, and work to build a model to protect at that layer as well. And so I think that's sort of the last mile um, that I think that was left out of that approach. But I think um, in general, right, it's a, it's a good concept to make sure that you're segmenting your network and making sure that if there's people who for no, you should never have a reason to use that part of the network, then definitely don't give them access to that. 
So I'm curious, you know, when I think of zero trust uh, for web applications, it's really obvious to me. An example would be like Gmail, right? Anybody can use Gmail. Right. It's a web application. When you go to the website, gmail.com, there's there's zero trust between your client and that server, right? There's there's some TLS certificates to get exchanged, so you at least have a secure connection, but you've got to authenticate, right. username, password, multi-factor authentication, right? All that stuff on the front end. I think we all see that every day. But the back end, you know, because the article talks about securing databases as well. If if we've got a web application that's talking to a database, all of a sudden things like multi-factor authentication don't quite work so well. So, uh, right. but, but you guys operate in that space. So, like, what are some of the things that you would put in place between a, a web application and a database to enforce zero trust? Yeah, well, I think that's that's really what we're seeing. Is you kind of need a two-pronged solution, right? So you'll see that there are a lot of vendors that go out and they're focused on kind of data access governance um, and even uh, a WAF type of solution, right? To protect the database that an application works off of. Um, like I think yeah, Imperva is an example of that, right? Like their company, they basically say, look, let's just take the database element of this application and let's protect it and make sure that you know, no kind of untrusted communication can come from a web application into the database. And so we don't really focus on that sort of technical application of the zero trust solution. We, we leave that to tools that focus more on the databases. I think there's a second layer of protection that, that you need that's sort of the loophole, which is, okay, you could still have trusted access from the application to the database. So you have a trusted connection there. Someone who really did log into the application but maybe they're logging into the application um, through credentials that they uh, hijacked through a phishing account or some sort of brute force attack, or maybe there was some misconfiguration in the application that allowed someone to log in with um, an administrator account that's still using the uh, default password that it was shipped with, right? So you need an additional layer of protection, which is sort of monitoring what are people doing through the application layer to reach the database. That's what we focus on is basically activity monitoring, right? Highlighting what all of these totally legitimate accounts that have a legitimate trusted connection to the database are doing, but monitoring that through sort of a zero trust uh, mentality, right? Which is just monitor what everyone is doing. Even if you think that this is a normal person doing something in their normal day-to-day -day role, it might not be right just because they logged in you know using legitimate credentials doesn't mean that they're doing something that might not be harmful so monitor everything people are doing it's sort of a a fail safe to that if that makes sense you know what this reminds me of ronnie you'll yeah. appreciate this right because it's it's not so much zero trust it's more like trust but verify, verify. right the old reaganism right. <laughs> so, you know we, we we trust the russians but we need to verify that all the nuclear missiles are gone so you know that, that's kind of how right. this is we need to trust that connection from the front end to the back end but we need to verify the access is being done. So that's kind of cool. And I, I suppose that would lead to, uh, would you call it like anomaly tracing or uh, what What terminology do you use for that? Yeah, we, we think about it as like UEBA. It's, it's sort of an extension of that, right? That's focused specifically on layer seven, because again, back to uh, where there's gaps in, in people's security posture and, and strategy, right? Um, people are doing a ton of UEBA at a network level and they're looking at, okay, did this person log in from a legitimate location with a, you know, a device that we're aware of? And, you know, is it a time of day that they normally do log in and work and things like that, right? And that's nice um, to look at that. And then once they determine that that looks normal, then basically nothing is really done from that 
point forward. It's just really at the point someone logs in, does this look like normal activity? And then what they're doing on the network within the applications, especially there's very little visibility. So we're really trying to augment that. We uh, integrate and, and work a lot in terms of um, bringing the information worth getting out of applications, providing that to the SOC, because I think it enriches what people know about users already at the network level to know that, hey, you know, this guy not only logged in from an unusual location, but now all of a sudden he's trying to uh, do something in the accounts page payable process and he's never tried to do something in the accounts payable process in SAP before. So this should really even heighten our suspicions, right? And and trigger maybe some uh, remediation or response based on that additional information. So I think it's it's sort of UEBA and anomaly detection, but in a very focused area, not to replace what companies are doing, but to say, look, like you could always use more information, right? More information, the better. And I, I had to look that up real quick because I wasn't familiar with the acronym. I, I originally thought, like, why is he talking oh, about European it. soccer leagues? But it's a <laughs> user and entity That's behavior UDFA, analytics. Yeah. 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 What did you say? User what? Uh, user and entity behavior analytics. So, you know, tracking the behavior of the users right. and, and the entities would be the, the stuff that they're accessing. So makes makes sense. Yeah, right. I, think, I think my key yes. takeaway here is uh, I'm in marketing and I know the code to the door for the <laughs> server room. And I, I should not know that. There's, there's no reason I should be going in there. There's a cable box in there, which sometimes I like to change if there's a, a game on. Well, you, you are a good example. So you, you're an employee where uh, originally you worked on the production team. Yeah. You needed access to that room. But when you transferred into your new role, you no longer need that access. And we didn't remove it. So, you know, that would be yeah. something that would be turned up. Yeah, roles change yeah. all the time. And got to gotta update those things. Hey, so uh, before we let you go, Kevin, I know we mentioned uh, version 5 uh, is out. Where can people go to kind of check out and learn a little bit more about that? Yes, um, I would encourage everyone to check out our website. Uh, we're at pathlock, P-A-T-H-L-O-C-K.com. Um, and so if you go to the website there, you'll see there's a uh, 5.0 preview release webinar that uh, is open to anyone to check out. So I um, would love to have you check it out. And if uh, anyone is interested in reaching out and speaking with us about layer seven security and, and securing applications like SAP, Oracle, uh, NetSuite, Workday, Salesforce. Um, we're certainly always happy to uh, have a conversation. So we'd look forward to uh, speaking with anyone that's interested. So you say preview release, is it, is it not like, is it kind of beta right, right now or, or is this fully ready to go? It's uh, we're currently in beta with our existing customers and we're looking for uh, new customers as well to to join the beta. So um, we're very excited to welcome uh, new customers now to that. It's been the last six months or so working with our existing customers, getting it uh, ready for a more open beta process. So we're looking to welcome some new uh, clients on board to try it out as well. So yeah, door is open. Very nice. Yeah, if you, if you head to pathlock.com, Dot com. There's a big, uh, big bar right across the top that you cannot miss uh, with the, the link for yep. that, that webinar or the webcast. So, yeah, definitely check that out. And, Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Really appreciate having you on. Thank you guys for having me. It was a pleasure. And stay tuned. Like I said, we're get, we've got a lot of news to talk about, uh, some interesting things. So we're going to take a quick break. Be right back with the news on TechNATO with Don Pazette. This is Kevin. He's studying online for a Microsoft certification using another online IT training service. He's also on his second pot of coffee today to stay awake. And this is Kyle. He's also studying Microsoft but using IT Pro TV. Rather than watching a boring voiceover PowerPoint, he's actually enjoying the training with two hosts in an interactive format. 
Both Kevin and Kyle have access to virtual lab to practice tests, but Kyle can also get help through a live chat with other IT Pro TV members and his instructors, as well as post to a Q&A forum. He can even search for exactly what he's looking for in the interactive video transcripts, all while paying less than Kevin. Oh, and Kyle can also watch in comfort via Roku app. Kevin and Kyle are both learning IT, but Kyle is enjoying the journey. Want to be more like Kyle? Here the plans to start your IT Pro TV membership today. All right, welcome back to TechNado with Don Bazette. Thank you so much, Kevin, for joining us and uh, teaching us all about Zero Trust, which is something, as Don pointed out, we've talked about a lot recently, mm -hmm. so it's good to get uh, some expert opinion there on it. Uh, well, let's get to the big story um, in this past week with our segment, New Tech This Week. New Tech This Week. We got the scoop. All right, so we're taking a look at the article from ArsTechnica.com. Windows 11 is much more than a new theme slapped onto Windows 10, which is what we expected, just a dark, <laughs> yeah, darker mode. dark mode. Um, <laughs> but there's a lot of cool stuff. It seems like uh, like Teams uh, was a big one, voice recognition. Um, Don, what, what stuck out to you as the, as the big takeaway here? All right. Well, the big takeaway for most people is going to be the user interface, right? Yeah. So it gets a refresh. We've got rounded corners and a slightly more modern UI. It's got a name. I've forgotten what they've nicknamed it. Uh, but it is definitely, if if you're a Mac OS user, or you're coming from the Apple world, you'll feel right at home because they're going to a dock at the bottom instead of a taskbar like normal. There is going to be a dock. Uh, and they've even changed like the little search boxes to look more like Apple Spotlight. So They've certainly taken some inspiration from macOS and dragged that into That's Windows 11. That's what you 11. call it, inspiration? Yeah, yeah, well, so uh, well, if we want to put it in Apple speak, we would say it's very brave of Microsoft oh, to embrace change like this. So it's. Uh, well, I mean, yeah. Windows was just stolen originally from, from Mac, wasn't it? Uh, well, you know, a lot of it came from Amiga mm. and... Microsoft and IBM work together. It's hard to say yeah. where a lot of that stuff came from, really. Who stole um, from whom? Yeah. But there's a, a bunch of other things that are kind of slipped in, some things that are, are just kind of window dressing for the average user. From an administrative standpoint, uh, it's not that much of a difference, right? So Windows 11 packs a few feature updates, but under the hood, it's pretty much the same. A couple of changes. Uh, they did change the hardware requirements. So you do have to have 64 gigs of free space to do the install now, which is more than ever before. You know, it gets bigger and bigger each year. Uh, you, This is kind of a big one a lot of people are talking about. Uh, you need to have a TPM version 2.0, trusted platform module. That's the security chip found in most laptops not found in most desktops. <laughs> and if your laptop is more than, say, five years old, you may well have a TPM version 1.2, which is not good enough. So that's a requirement that Microsoft didn't really talk about, but it hints at in Windows 11, BitLocker will be enabled by default, which is why you need that TPM to be there in place. Uh, they did kind of release a, a little back-channel communication after the announcement saying, if you don't have a TPM, you won't be able to install the normal Windows 11. But as an administrator, you can create a custom install image that disables that requirement, but it's not supported by Microsoft. <laughs> so basically you need a TPM and that's causing a huge run on TPM chips right now. So it's kind of a big deal. And it's 64-bit only, is that? 
Uh, so it is 64-bit only. You have to have a 64-bit CPU, but it will still run 32-bit applications. They're just saying they're eliminating hardware support. There's not an x86 version of Windows 11. Uh, technically, there really wasn't a true x86 of Windows 10 either, but it, it was supported via, via Microsoft in a deprecated state. So, uh, But that, that's gone in Windows 11. And one of the big things that, that I saw um, that I think kind of affects more the the general public is the adoption of android apps right yeah yeah they they promoted that one a lot and i was shocked to see how they're doing it right so microsoft has been doing a lot of work with android and they've got that my phone uh feature inside of windows 10 that lets you connect to your android phone so i thought that's how they would do it uh turns out they've actually partnered with amazon the amazon app store so if you've got android apps via the amazon app store on your Kindle device or on some previous Android phone, they'll actually be able to run in Windows 11 on the desktop. Now, it is a subset. It's, uh, I, I think they said something like 600 apps, and the Amazon App Store has thousands of apps in it, so it's not everything. Yeah. But it uh, it is interesting to start blurring the lines between the platforms. Yeah, it is kind of strange that when you actually ended up reading this article, it said, most importantly, it, it must feel emotional. I, I don't oh, know. Yeah. That, that seems to kind of be like... Uh, why would you actually build an, an entire operating system around the emotional feel of it? You know, everybody's been doing this. Yeah. Apple has been doing it for years, right. and now Microsoft has started too, right? So it's like getting up and saying, this is the best Windows ever. ever. Giving you some emotional music as, oh, we, as yeah. we talk about this guy. Or, or, you know, Apple, we're brave to remove <laughs> the headphone jack. Like, you know, these so kind brave. of emotions, uh, I guess marketing people eat this up because, you know, you can't substantiate it. You can't right. quantify that as a, a number and say... Well, it's uh, you know, it's it's a seven point two on the emotion scale <laughs> versus the six that we had before. Yeah, it's fourteen percent more emotion uh, <laughs> is what you're shooting for with a big, yeah. big release like this. So that's just BS. But uh, but it's exciting, you know, because there was a time where people were saying, "Hey, we might just have Windows ten forever." Right, you know, they're, they're going on that well, six. Microsoft said that, didn't they? Yeah, this they, is the last version of Windows. That turns like out it isn't. <laughs> a year ago. Yeah, know. no. I, as I looked at it for the first time, because I saw Adam actually was running it, and Mike had also sent a couple of screenshots yesterday. I kept looking at it in my iPad that I had. I was like, you know, it, it looks like that they're trying to get that feel that it's going to go onto a tablet at mm -hmm. some point and be run that way, because everything looks like it's also enabled for touch. Uh, as well, so kind of very neat. Yeah, which you know they tried in Windows 8, mm -hmm. they went a little too aggressive and got burned. Right, and so they kind of backed off that for Windows 10. And now they're slowly stepping into it, like they probably should have in the beginning. Uh, I did forget one important feature. Did you guys see the cost of Windows 11? It's free, yeah, right? Free. Uh, free if you've got a Windows 10 license, yeah. right? I mean, you, you will have to buy it if you're doing like a brand new computer, and it'll probably be the standard $200 price point that you see, uh, or 100 for home, 200 for for Pro. Uh, but if you've already got a Windows 10 license and you got Windows 10 installed, it'll be a free upgrade to Windows 11. Uh, and they are allegedly going to be rolling that out to consumers in October. So uh, just a couple of months away. Enterprises might not see it this year. It might actually be quarter one of 2022 before enterprises see it. Yeah, yeah I, I was just noticing that uh, here in the article is saying it's, it's supposed to actually uh, tip off some performance improvements but they can't actually apply any real concrete metrics to of course. to that uh, particular uh, statement uh, at all. So faster wake from sleep, faster uh, hello biometric authentication, uh, faster browsing and edge. So, but emotionally. Yeah, but yeah. emotionally much faster. Those things are. They do make a rather broad claim of <laughs> all web browsers will be faster under yeah, Windows 11, true. which yeah. uh, awesome. you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. You know, we'll, we'll get some benchmarks eventually and be able to quantify yeah. that. I wonder yeah. if that means like all Chromium-based or maybe. Um, yeah. 
Microsoft's yeah. gone all in on that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. All right, 40% well, smaller updates. That's nice. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That would be cool. Yep. So <laughs> when my computer just reboots uh, on its own, it'll, it'll be quicker. Well, so... <laughs> 40% smaller update to me is kind of a BS thing because <laughs> you still get the same amount of updates, which means the same amount of reboots. Yeah, like, just, I, I never complained about the size of yeah. an update. It's just... You're, you're just getting more of them to equal the, yeah. the yeah. current size. Yeah, you get four <laughs> updates today, but yeah. they're, they're all really small. All right, well, one of the big uh, other parts of this is kind of in to our next article, which is from TomTalks.blog. Microsoft Teams 2.0... 2.0 will use half the memory, dropping Electron for Edge WebView 2. And uh, I know the Teams integration was kind of a really big part of, of this announcement and and how much it's kind of built into the, the taskbar and, and and all that. So what what is this change with, with Electron? What does that mean for the end user? All right, a couple of big changes here. One I left off a moment ago is that in Windows 11, Microsoft Teams will be installed as the default communications application, replacing Skype. So Microsoft is all in with Teams. It's going to be there, and they have that free model now for uh, home users to be able to use Teams. So they're envisioning a world where everyone uses Teams to communicate. We'll see if it gets there. Well, when you want everyone to communicate, that means you have to support other operating systems like Mac OS and Linux, iOS, you know, all the different mobile platforms. And an easy way to achieve that is to use Electron. So what Electron is, is just a portable version of the Chromium web browser that is multi-platform. And then you write your application as a web application. So when you run it in Electron, it's really just running a Chrome web browser and pulling up the app. And so that'll work on darn near anything. Uh, the problem with Electron, though, is it sucks up some memory. It consumes a lot of RAM when it runs. Very inefficient. It's also fairly slow. And keeping it secure is a challenge. Keeping it up to date. Right. You know, it's up to the application vendors. So uh, Electron has a lot of people that hate it, a lot of detractors. Well, Microsoft has come up with something uh, I'm going to do air quotes you? for our listeners, <laughs> called Better, Better. Uh, which is Edge WebView. It's basically using Microsoft Edge as the equivalent of Electron. Uh, Edge is based on Chromium, so it's just kind of their implementation. Microsoft wants full control over it. Uh, now, I'm going to hold off judgment on this one. In, in theory, reading the marketing slicks and stuff, it sounds like it's going to be better, but Silverlight was supposed to be better oh, than Flash, and I it turns out, yeah. <laughs> you know, Flash was terrible, uh, Silverlight was terrible, right. but maybe it was a little less terrible, but they still both sucked, right? Yeah. So I, I, I'm not expecting much out of Edge WebView. Yeah, I think in anything, especially for like Teams, that was probably the biggest complaint that we ever heard is that sometimes it would launch and then it would just take forever and then you'd have to close it out and then open it back up and everything. And so this, according to what we're actually seeing here, they're saying they should fix some of those problems. Yeah, we will see. Yeah, and what and what I was reading here is is said kind of like the takeaway is that it's moving towards a more uh, the quote here is Microsoft controlled technology stack. So I mean, in theory, that should make it well. In theory, that should make it more stable. That that the people writing it are the people that you know wrote the. We'll see. The tools, you know, yeah. There's there's a lot of people with visibility into Electron. Uh, it's used in tons and tons of applications. So. Uh, when Microsoft puts a actual paid team of engineers to work on it, maybe maybe that'll be better. Maybe it won't. We'll, we'll just have to wait and see. All right, we'll wait and see. Uh, yeah, but Teams, a big part of this uh, announcement and a, and a big part of Windows 11, and uh, looks like Edge is, you know, locking itself in there even more too. So, I mean, one of our biggest YouTube videos is how to get Edge off your uh, <laughs> Microsoft computer. So, 
will be even uh, even more difficult. It sounds like if you take Edge off of Windows 11, you'll just break everything. So Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let's move on from Microsoft because other things did happen uh, in the last week. And our next article is from Pharonix.com. Firewalled prepares for its uh, major 1.0 release for Linux firewall management. And that's Firewalled with, with no second it's, E. It's Firewall D. D. Far, dang it. <laughs> Firewall D. So, so, Don, how long has, has this announcement been kind of, everybody's been waiting for it? Oh, it's been building up for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember when. Uh, so, Firewall D is a Red Hat project. Right. If you're not familiar with it, it is, originally it was designed as a front end to IP tables, and it was a way to manage your firewall rules in Linux. So, it was developed by a Red Hat development team. It was deployed in Fedora first, you know, Red Hat's testing environment. But it made its way into RHEL, Red Hat Enterprise Linux. So that means it's got commercial support. It's considered very stable. Uh, if you use CentOS or any of the other Red Hat variants, you use Firewall D for managing your firewall. Uh, it is like many open source products, one of those that slowly crept through its beta phases with you know 0.8 point whatever version numbers. Well, they are finally progressing to version 1.0. It's kind of a big deal when when they they come out and say, "Look, we're ready to be our own." Firewall. Uh, now, that was kind of a surprise to me. I've always treated Firewall D as a front end to IP tables. So, IP tables was the actual firewall that I was using and, you know, NetFilter underneath that. Uh, but then Firewall D and the Firewall D CMD command was how I interacted with it. Well, with this announcement, they said starting in version 1.0, they are deprecating their IP tables backend, which means they are now their own. Mm firewall service built on top of NetFilter. So they've kind of bumped that out. So if you're used to you know, mixing and matching between editing the IP tables config and using firewall CMD, you won't be able to do that after version 1.0. Uh, it's going to be rolling out in Fedora in the next couple of months. And then probably in the next two years, we'll see that make the leap into RHEL, uh, which will lead it to widespread adoption. Nice. Well, I didn't pay attention to any of that because I was still mad that it's not firewalled i think that's a big miss uh you know they could turn this into a verb and like when they block things they can be like sorry you've been firewalled well you know in this case is a linux thing so uh demons that run in the background they stick a d on the end so you have like the sshd the yeah. secure shell demon right. here it's the firewall demon yep all right now I, I feel better now that i know the what is it entomology what, what is it called when you No, that's studying bugs etymology could be yeah rhinoplasty <laughs> pretty sure, pretty that's sure that's it. what it is. Nailed it. <laughs> All right, uh, let's I think we just make up words to describe it now. Yeah, there's got to be a word for that too. <laughs> All right, let's head over to Ars Technica again for our next article. I'm totally screwed. <laughs> Love the title. <laughs> uh, WD, my book live users wake up to find. Is it WD Western Digital? Yeah. Western Digital. Yeah. yeah. Okay, but do you say WD? Yeah. Okay. Ronnie laughed, and so now I'm really sensitive <laughs> about <laughs> how I'm saying headlines. You. All right. It's your emotion. That's right. right. It's emotional. Yeah, emotionally. Uh, WD, my book, live users wake up to find their data deleted. So these are the, the physical devices that uh, that you put in your home that's kind of like your, your personal cloud, right? Yeah. This is like big, not like the uh, like a little SSD, but like a, a, a pretty big Right. So the drive. you know th these are hard drives, external hard drives that uh, have a case, a plastic case wrapped around them that's designed to look like a book. You know, a right. book you'd take off your shelf, a nice 
thick hardcover, <laughs> you know, not not like Hot. some little romance novel like is on uh, Peter shelves. But uh, <laughs> basically, uh, they've been selling these for years, and honestly, they're, they're a great idea. Your average user at home, your your grandmother, your parents, they don't back up their computers. They don't think about that stuff. So. You can go to Best Buy for a hundred bucks. You can buy one of these. I think right now they're like twelve terabytes, fourteen terabytes in size. You stick it on your computer, and now you got a place you can run backups to. And so when your computer uh, inevitably gets hosed, because that's what uh, less skilled computer users do, you have all of your data nice and backed up. Well, right now if you go and buy one of these, I believe they're all called the Western Digital My Cloud drives, mm. but. About five years ago, maybe maybe seven, kind of teetering in that window, uh, they were called My Book Lives. And these were a little bit more advanced. So they weren't just a USB connection to your computer. You'd plug an Ethernet cable into them, which meant they could operate at higher speeds to communicate out to the Internet and back up your data. So that meant they're, they're backing these things up externally as well? Or, or was all the data so you, on your drive? You had that option if you paid for it to sync up, okay. which I don't know that anybody ever actually did that. <laughs> but it gave you the ability to go anywhere in the world, to any computer in the world, log into Western Digital Site and access the files that were on your WD book. My Book back but at home. It looks like this is the reason why you should have paid for that feature. And that's the challenge is because they were connected to the internet, there was a zero-day exploit in the drive's firmware that allowed outside attackers to scan the internet and find these devices and be able to get into them. Uh, they leveraged that to factory reset and erase the drives. And so people woke up one day and, and their drives were empty these things that are you know kind of giving them that peace and security just blown away so we don't know if the, that the data was taken we just know that it was it was erased the, the data was not taken was so not taken. yeah they, okay. they viewed the logs they know how the attack works the data was just erased well i'll yeah. tell you what is the the worst thing to me reading this is uh it shows you how bad it is that their response is hey if you have this you should unplug it <laughs> yeah now until we until Just we figure this out like that shows you how like how bad this is and, and that there's not a fix that that's about to be released so it is bad but they are um they, they haven't launched it yet but they've announced they will be launching a data recovery service you know when you delete files they don't actually They're go still, away yeah. usually you write something else over it right correct okay. and the factory reset that was done did not overwrite the disk so there's a really good chance that these users will be able to mail the drive back Western Digital will be able to recover that data and then send it back to you, unless you went the extra step of configuring, you know, BitLocker encryption on it or something oh, like yeah. that. But again, your average home user is not going to do that. So your average home user may end up okay, but they won't have access to their drive for a while. Uh, now, to me, one thing that people aren't calling out here, uh, one of the big challenges is that if you got one of these my books and you were just using it inside of your house and you weren't using the cloud features it would still request that your router did a port forward. So it would do UPnP, the universal plug and play. Um, UPnP lets a device talk to a router or firewall and say, hey, could you please redirect this port to me? And then the firewall opens it up. It's designed to prevent end users from having to, to do port forwards on their own. Well, that means for a lot of these users, their devices were exposed to the internet and they didn't know it. Uh, and so then their device gets wiped out. So they think, oh no, I'm not using that feature, but it turns out right. they were. I, I hate UPnP. I turn it off on every device that I, I use, you know, in my home, at the office. You know, it's something that really shouldn't exist, in my opinion. I think that, yes, it, it's annoying to have to figure out how to forward a port, but that kind of guarantees that you know that port is being forwarded. In this case, I think a lot of this happened by accident. 
So I'm curious, uh, and we only have a couple more seconds or we're out of time for this article, but what, what do you guys use at, at home for, for your kind of solution like this? Uh, I pay 100 bucks a year for two terabytes of storage with Google. Okay. And that's what I sync to. To Google Drive. I sync to OneDrive. OneDrive, yeah. Yep. Yeah, so I mean, there's much less risk of something like this happening in in a cloud situation because you're you're distributed more across multiple yeah. computers. Yeah, I mean, like let's say they, they encrypted all the data, like mm -hmm. ransomware, and the encrypted version synced up to Google. Well, all you got to do is go up to the web page and roll you back yeah. to the day before. You, yeah. you do that with Dropbox or any of the various mm -hmm. cloud services, but you got to pay every year versus one of these my books that you just buy one time and you've got it. Yeah, I never liked the idea of these things because I'm thinking, I, I'm not thinking about my computer breaking. I'm thinking, oh, there's a, a fire in the house. I've I've lost everything. Well, if your data is backed up right next to the computer, that doesn't that doesn't <laughs> help you. But, yeah, that's true. Yeah. All right, fun, fun, exciting stuff. So if you have one, unplug it. Throw it against the wall. <laughs> Don't put a help. drill through it yet because yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe they can get the files off there, as Don said. All right, our next article comes to us from bleepingcomputer.com. Microsoft admits to signing <laughs> rootkit malware in supply chain fiasco. And so I just I want to make sure I understand what this means, signing it. So sure. this is not saying we created this. They're saying we you know, kind of ran this through our checks and, yep, this one's good to go. So we kind of have to go back in time. Back to the release of Windows Vista. Do you remember, Ronnie, when did that come out? 2007? Like, uh, somewhere a while there, ago. <laughs> when Windows Vista came out, they introduced a new security feature, which was drive, driver signing. Driver mm -hmm. signing had actually been around. What they what they changed in Vista was they made it required. 2007. Right. So Correct. January 30th. Ronnie is a endless font of knowledge. <laughs> so, uh, you know, when somebody runs an application, the application runs as the user. So in theory, they, it only has the same access as the user. There's only so much damage they can do. If they can be an administrator, they can do a little bit more. But there's still some things an administrator can't do. Right. But hardware drivers, hardware drivers run, well, from the, the kernel. kernel. Yeah. And so they can do anything, right? They really have an unprecedented level of access to your system. So they're really sensitive. And so what Microsoft did is they said, we want to prevent some of the malware that's out there that propagates as a driver. And so they instituted a new thing, which was if you release a driver from Microsoft Windows, you need to send it to Microsoft for review. They will digitally sign it, create a, 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 a cipher, not a cipher, but a hash key uh, that designates that this driver was certified and tested and is okay and is safe for you to install, and then they release it. The other option, if you don't do that, is users have to disable the, the driver signing ch security check, which if you do that, Windows throws all yeah. sorts of warning messages at you. Like you have a, a watermark on your screen all the time, like a bunch of annoying things. So nobody does that. Uh, in this scenario, this is kind of the worst case scenario. A, a malware, a, a threat actor, took a legitimate driver and stuck malware attached to it and then submitted it to Microsoft and managed to get through their approval process. Microsoft digitally signed it saying, you can trust this malware. They were targeting Chinese gamers, and so they pushed out, and you know, China's a whole different, uh, a whole different, I don't wanna say like set a different world, but it's a different set of rules. Yep. So you know, here in the US, if I wanna get a driver, I go to the vendor's website. The website's always in English. I can get to the downloads and pull it down. In China, a lot of times they, they are used to using third-party websites because they've been properly converted into Chinese, not some just like after-the-fact translation. So they would download this driver from someone other than the original vendor, install it, it shows as trusted, and now they would have a rootkit running at the kernel level. Really, really bad news. 
Yeah, it said it was communicating with China-based CNC IP. So is that like CNC Music Factory? Uh, very similar because <laughs> they do have the power, uh, <laughs> but it is the command and control servers. Mm, yeah. Things that make you go, hmm. Yeah, oh, this, shoot. I, did I get the wrong band? Who's saying I got the power? Uh, uh, yeah, I don't think that's them. Oh. Uh, oh, CNC wow, Music Factory is the Everybody <laughs> Dance Now. Oh, yep, yep, all right. Yeah, uh, looking through this article, it was, ta- it was showing like the, the breakdown of one of the IPs it was going back to. So it seemed like as I was continuing to read this, they were like, there's nothing in there, but as soon as it calls home, then it downloaded essentially yeah. that rootkit. You know, it was, was. A, fans, uh, uh, a fascinating read. If you ever get a chance for our listeners out there to go to Bleeping Computer and read yeah. about it, because they, they talk about how the CNCs worked, which was mm-hmm. really neat. You know, you, you, you basically browse to a URL, and it would give you the IP and uh, path. Yeah. To access four different things, you know, like one was uh, to download a payload, another one was to get instructions on when to phone home or who to contact and so on. Uh, so it was interesting because they, they really showed how that server worked and how it communicated and the way that they could handle rapidly changing IPs and domain names and still be effective. So what does it say about the process of that signing? Is it just something that just kind of got skipped over or there's no human eyes on anything on this? That's the big warning here. Okay. So you are hearing people coming out and saying, look, if we can't trust Microsoft to do this, then then this whole thing's just <laughs> blown out of the water. We need to give up on driver signing, right? Mm-hmm. But the reality is there's not anybody who's going to do a better <laughs> job, right? True. So this, this is the first time that we know of that this particular scenario has happened. There was one other close call a couple of years ago. Uh, that's a pretty good track record. And I don't think anybody else could do a better job on this one. So... Uh, Microsoft is obviously going to have to change their processes, do a better job of validating things, but it just shows that sometimes, no matter what level of security you implement, things can still get through. That's why I use zero trust myself. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and there is a lesson here of don't download drivers from you know, not the vendor site. That, that's one problem. Uh, but even here, you know, who's to say that attacker didn't go the extra step of compromising the right. original vendor site? They could have done yeah, that. Yeah, because I was thinking this might have been through like a GitHub you know, thing where they got into the actual code. And because we, t- we talked about something like that recently where, uh, yeah, they were able to change the yeah. the source code. Yeah. Uh, I've Got the Power is by Snap. Snap. Uh, Snap. Sounds right. like a one-hit uh, wonder to yeah. me where CNC Music Factory was a several-hit I Actually, wonder. if I recall correctly, they were the founding members of CNC Music Factory. I think you're making that up. <laughs> I think you're making that, that up. That is the font right. of knowledge right there. <laughs> All right. Now, now's the, the moment you've been waiting for. Uh, <laughs> it's the time to put on our tinfoil hats. The moon landing was fake. Paul McCartney's been dead since 1966. Dogs can't see color. 5G causes syphilis. Do you understand that? All right. I'm going to keep the... Uh, I'm keep the Xbox theme going for the this one. Landing was fake. <laughs> oh no, that's that's. Been dead that's, since that's, I'm talking in that one. Oh, never mind. I won't, I won't play that. Syphilis. All right. Do you understand that? <laughs> there he is again, Alex. <laughs> All right, this was is from Reuters.com, so we're supposed to be able to trust this as a legitimate <laughs> news source. Larger than life software mogul John McAfee dies in Spain by suicide. Lawyer says, well. You would think, sure, that makes a lot of sense. He was just, it was just uh, announced uh, that he would be extradited to the U.S. to face, um, what was it, tax evasion mm-hmm. um, yeah. charges. And, and I think there was like a kind of a Ponzi scheme thing that he was involved in uh, as well. But then uh, they found him dead in his cell. But we go back a year. <laughs> and the man has tweeted, what did he say, Ronnie? He, he was talking about that if you do find me in jail and it looks like I committed suicide or something. I didn't, so he's kind of letting people know that it's I mean, not, he didn't do it. Yeah, how much more on point can yeah. can this be? It's pretty darn clear. 
So what we've got is obviously, well, one of two things, I think, is what we were discussing. Either murdered, you know, Possible. several uh, several people, I'm sure, would be, um, you know, lined up for uh, suspects for that. Or number two, faked death. And that's the one I'm going with. Well, you know, um, John <laughs> McAfee, if you don't know who yeah. he is, I think most people do, uh, was the uh, original founder of McAfee Antivirus, which uh, I believe 15 years ago was sold to another company, but eventually was acquired by Intel. So Intel owns McAfee Antivirus. Uh, John has not been attached to the company in any way in over a decade, uh, but he has gone on to just be this over-the-top, bizarre celebrity-type character. Um and you know, it was a couple of years ago we reported on the incident with him down in South America. It was where, a murder, right? Uh, his neighbor got murdered, <laughs> and the government was after him, and he had a body double step in that yeah. got arrested while he snuck out of the country. And, I mean, just crazy stuff like that surrounds John McAfee. And so he's been hiding out in Spain for a while in a ghost hotel slash Bitcoin farm <laughs> uh, and was finally arrested. He's been in a Spanish prison for a little while. And he, uh, you know, basically committed suicide. Well, mm -hmm. there's a lot of conspiracy theorists out there that say this is not what happened. And, and you have to wonder, like, he had the money. Potentially, he bribed his way out of prison. And we talked about this before the show. Like, what would it take to prove that John McAfee was dead? So, like, Ronnie, yeah. for you, like, what, what would you need? What, what evidence? Do you already have enough? Or, or is there something more you would need to be convinced? Uh, I, I think I have enough uh, overall <laughs> just because— he is so bizarre at this point, and I think he's been slowly mentally declining uh, to the point where I, I, I think that when his extradition came through, he was like, all right, that's enough. I, I'm, I don't want to go back and get uh, facing murder charges or whatever it might be, tax evasion and some type of fraud scheme on Bitcoin, I think, or cryptocurrency. So, Yeah, you know, if we break this down, uh, it, it, it doesn't make sense because if he was going to fake his own death to escape, he wouldn't have put out those tweets to make people second-guess his suicide a year ago because he would want people to think he had committed suicide. But well, as you pointed out, Don, he's not the kind of guy that's not going to brag about how well he faked his death. <laughs> yeah, if he faked his death, we'll know it within a year because there's yeah. no way he can avoid tweeting. But you know what? Some Twitter channel will pop up and it'll be, you know, McAfee lives and he'll start tweeting or his official one will start tweeting. You won't really know if it's him behind it or not. Right. Um, his wife, Janice McAfee, Janice. Uh, does have control of his Twitter feed. So she is able to tweet as him. So again, yeah, that could really complicate things. Remind me yeah. how they met. Uh, she she solicited him yes. as a prostitute. Yes, she did. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, this guy's life, like somebody, they already made one documentary. I think they need to come back and do another one because it's just like his life got more and more bizarre over time. So was this before Pretty Woman? Was Do you think this was based uh, or, or that he was inspired by Pretty Woman to go out and, uh, and find love? Pretty I, Woman was like 80s. I right? bet yeah. he was inspired by Pretty Woman. Okay. That was probably, yeah. you know, forefront in his collection. So and And so the flip side... <laughs> Of okay, was he murdered? Well, I mean, I don't think the U.S. government would murder him because they want him here to to face, face these charges. charges. So the only people that would murder him, I think, is kind of the same thing as the Epstein um, conspiracy theories: is does he have dirt on somebody else? And I don't know. I don't know if he does, though. He has or, been basically in hiding. Well, he's, so okay. Oh, yeah, I was gonna say he's in prison abroad, which all of us have actually seen, like you know, broken down palace or something like that. So. I think that you know Spain's not like this third world country. Okay. <laughs> well, let me let me let me throw out a tangent here. Not not saying I necessarily believe this, right? But he he ran into trouble in South America. What what country was he in? Was it Colombia? 
Argentina. I thought it was like Bolivia. Yeah, Bolivia. Was it Bolivia? Uh, yeah. All right, so let's just pretend for a moment it yeah. was Bolivia. Uh, sorry, Corolla, if we're wrong. Uh, <laughs> and so, so, um, so you know, he got in trouble down there, Spanish-speaking country, right? Mm-hmm. Spain, See. Spanish-speaking country. You know, okay. if you're a criminal mastermind, you're typically going to operate in countries where you know the language. Maybe the uh, the Bolivian government reached out. Uh, this this tracks him from Belize to Guatemala to Spain. So okay. uh, no Bolivia involved. No, I think right. he, I think They're yeah, off the Belize hook. was where the the issue happened, and then he moved to Guatemala to to escape, and then uh, ended up in Spain. I so. forgot this. Uh, he was also the libertarian. Oh yeah, party he ran for nomination president. for president of the United States. Did he? Did he win that nomination? No. I thought he didn't. No. Okay, he ran for it. Yeah. Because yeah. you know that was uh, Peter. Do you remember we were at I believe it was RSA many years ago, mm-hmm. and you came to me because we were looking for people to interview, and you said John McAfee's here. He's running for president. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, we can't interview that guy. That guy's insane. <laughs> you regret that decision to this day. Uh, you know, I kind of do yeah. in a way. I, there would have been nothing of value in oh, that interview. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Just personally, it would have been very rewarding. But uh, yep. So instead, we interviewed like Bruce Schneier or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah who has not been nearly yeah. as excited. Yeah, yeah. Boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean... Take take some time if you're not familiar with this story. Go down the rabbit hole. Um, you know, just check out his Wikipedia page. It takes you through. He had a 2016 presidential campaign, a 2020 campaign, where at that point he hadn't been in the U.S. Yeah. for many many years, and you know was under indictment. And so, I don't know how that inauguration would have gone if he had ex- had planned to actually win. Um, but uh, because we've never elected anyone with criminal charges. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, it, it was Belize where uh, where the murder happened. Gregory Fall uh, was the the neighbor there, um, and yeah. So the end to a uh, to an interesting story. It, it, I've got an idea. The uh, you know this guy knows security. Maybe this whole time McAfee's been harvesting your data instead of just protecting it, so he knows everybody's secrets. There's your there's your motive. Maybe. We we will see, and I, I don't think this is the end of the story. I think this one will, it will it will peter out after a year or two. Yeah. It's not like Elvis, where people will be holding true to it forty years later. But uh, but I, I think I think we'll see hear about it next year. The, the yeah, term I, pe- I think it's done. <laughs> <laughs> the term petered out is offensive. Yeah, uh, well, I can see that. Two Peters yeah. everywhere. Your name references the end of yeah. someone's <laughs> career <laughs> to something just kind of crapping out. It's, yeah. it's fair. Pulled a Peter. <laughs> no, never mind. That didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Want to let you know about. About some uh, some webinars coming up for uh, next month is CompTIA month or this month I should say July uh, 2021. Here's CompTIA month at IT Pro TV and the first webinar is Explore Next Level CompTIA Cybersecurity Certs. What makes sense for you? So in this webinar with Patrick Lane from CompTIA, we'll be looking at the uh, the next level after you know A plus um, IT fundamentals. Um, you know. Security Plus, so going into, what, CASP, uh, Pentest Plus, what's the other one, CI, no, CISA, CISA, um, definitely be in that. So that's taking place Thursday, July 8th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can go ahead and register for that at itpro.tv slash webinars. And then take a little uh, moment after you read the Wikipedia page about uh, Mr. McAfee there uh, to head over to technado.com. You can check out the latest episodes. Make sure you subscribe. You can send us some listener mail and uh Tell us who you think killed uh, killed John, and then if you're <laughs> bored, jump over to YouTube and look for his video on how to uninstall McAfee antivirus. <laughs> it it okay. has uh, 
What did he put that out after he sold the company? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Yep. It's over the top. Fantastic. Has guns, drugs, out. women. True story. Not made up. All involved in, <laughs> in an installation or uh, of uninstalling an app. Huh? Yes. I just subscribed. I know it's hard sometimes <laughs> to uninstall things, but I didn't realize that hard. Uh, well, you can click that big orange button that says "Sponsored by IT Pro TV," and you can get a thirty percent off coupon code for the lifetime of your personal subscription. And you can also request a team trial. Find out uh, more about all the great features available to teams from IT Pro TV. I think we're also doing a CompTIA free month uh, or free free month. That'd be nice. <laughs> a free weekend this month. Um, so I'll definitely get you some details about that. Um, I'm not sure which weekend that is, but Val's going to kill me. I watched, I did, why did I even bring it up if I didn't know? But uh, that's taking place uh, a little bit later in the month. We're going to have come to get Jeopardy at the end of the month. I think both of you are involved in that. So that's, I believe I'm hosting. I believe you are. Uh, so that is exciting. But uh, yeah, big time over at IGPR TV. All right. Well, Ronnie, thank you so much for, for jumping in. We appreciate have your, fun. Thank your you. insights on, on Windows 11. And, uh, and everything else there. And uh, Don, as always, thank you. And thank you, all of you, for watching. We'll see you next week right here on Technado with Don Pizzette. <laughs>